thus far in Acts 22, we've seen Paul survive another riot by unbelieving Jews through the intervention of civic authorities. In this case, it was the Roman commander of the fortress Antonia which overlooked the temple where this was taking place. He was the one who stepped in to remove Paul from the riotous crowd who had been intent on killing him. This commander, Claudius Lysias, had been impressed when Paul spoke to him in Greek and granted the apostles' request to address the crowd from the fortress steps. Paul had signaled to the crowd to listen, and they did so when he spoke to them in their own language. Paul bore testimony to his education under Gamaliel, his past as a persecutor of Christians, and his conversion on the way to do just that in Damascus. The last thing we heard in Paul's defense speech was that Jesus had said to him in a vision, Depart from Jerusalem, for I will send you far from here to the Gentiles. And it is at that point that we pick up the narrative. We will see that the apostle who appealed to his Jewish credentials for a Jewish crowd could also appeal, once again, to his Roman credentials when dealing with Roman soldiers. So verse 22, and they, and this is the Jewish crowd, listened to him until this word. And then they raised their voices and said, away with such a fellow from the earth, for he is not fit to live. Remember that one of the charges made by these Jews against Paul was that he had brought a Gentile into the temple. We know from extra biblical sources that there was a great deal of anti-Gentile sentiment in Jerusalem at this time. So it's not surprising that they listen to Paul, they give him attention until the time he tells them that Jesus had sent him on a mission to the Gentiles. And it was upon hearing that that they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he is not fit to live. Unwilling to hear anything from someone who had a positive view of the Gentiles, they revert to the desire to have Paul taken away from the earth, which of course means to have Paul killed. Verse 23, then as they cried out and tore off their clothes and threw dust into the air, we're going to stop there because that tells what the crowd did, they back up their words with demonstrative actions. Now commentators debate the exact meaning of this tearing off of their clothes. The language might mean that they they shook off their clothes in a manner equivalent to shaking the dust off their feet as a sign of disapproval of Paul's message. Paul had done something similar in Corinth. We read in Acts 18, when Silas and Timothy had come from Macedonia, Paul was compelled by the Spirit and testified to the Jews that Jesus is the Christ. But when they opposed him and blasphemed, he shook his garments and said to them, Your blood be upon your own heads, for I am clean. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. This Jewish crowd in the temple might have torn their clothing as a similar sign, or they might simply have removed them to free them to grab whatever it is that they could throw at the apostle. In the event, they threw dust into the air. This is clearly a sign of disapproval. One commentator suggests it was an indication that they would have liked to have stoned him, but they didn't find any stones in the temple, so all they could throw was dust. Regardless of their precise actions, their hatred of Paul and his message is clear. 
Verse 24, the commander ordered him to be brought into the barracks and said that he should be examined under scourging so that he might know why they shouted so against him. While Claudius didn't fully understand the situation, he perceives that the problem centers around this guy, Paul. And so he orders Paul to be interrogated by torture to find out the truth about why this crowd is so angry at him. Doesn't seem like the natural thing for us to do, but is actually rather common back then. And such scourging was a very serious matter. Commentator Ben Witherton explains. This was a regular and legal, though brutal, means of extracting testimony from someone, often used against either slaves or aliens. The flagrum was a much more dangerous instrument than the lictor's rods or the lashes Paul was given by the Jewish authorities. It had various designs. It was often constructed with a wooden handle and leather thongs strung with lead pellets or knuckle bones, but could also be made with wires with ends bristled. The instrument would be used on the subject's back and could tear flesh and so maim a person for life or even kill him if used repeatedly. That is the hideous nature of the scourging that they are preparing to give Paul. Verse 25, And as they bound him with thongs, Paul said to the centurion who stood by, Is it lawful for you to scourge a man who is a Roman and uncondemned? So you need to picture the scene. Paul is in their captivity. He's being stretched out. His his arms and hands probably are being bound so that his back is exposed so that he can be scourged. A Roman centurion is in charge of this. That was a rather high-ranking official, someone in charge of a hundred men. It was a serious affair. It was not something that a low-level soldier would just do by themselves. But as they make their preparations, Paul asks the centurion a question. Is it lawful for you to scourge a man who is a Roman and uncondemned? Now, there are two implications to this question. First is the fact that it is not lawful to scourge scourge an uncondemned Roman citizen. Second... The implication is that Paul is a Roman citizen. And the centurion understands both of these implications and immediately acts upon this new information. Verse 26, when the centurion heard that, he went and told the commander, saying, Take care what you do, for this man is a Roman. Not only was it illegal to scourge an uncharged and uncondemned Roman citizen, it was even illegal to bind them as had already been done to Paul. And we get a sense of the seriousness of the situation for what what Cicero had written at an earlier time, but still characterized the view of the day. Cicero had written, To bind a Roman citizen is a crime, to flog him an abomination, to slay him almost an act of murder. And so it is with good reason that the centurion advises the commander to take care with Paul. Verse 27, then the commander came and said to him, Tell me, are you a Roman? He said, Yes. So acting on the centurion's information, Claudius Lysias asked Paul the direct question, Are you a Roman? That is, he's asking, Do you have Roman citizenship? Paul answers affirmatively. Now, we don't know if Paul was carrying an official document to prove his Roman citizenship. Some documents like that existed. 
But the claim would not be made lightly because falsely claiming Roman citizenship was a capital offense. So there would there be no reason for an educated man like Paul that knew such things to lie about his citizenship. And even if he didn't have proof on himself, the truth could easily be determined by sending a messenger to Tarsus to find out the truth. For such reasons, it's likely that the commander believed Paul's claim. Their next interchange is most interesting. Verse 28, the commander answered, With a large sum of money, I obtained this citizenship. And Paul said, But I was born a citizen. It seems that what the commander is doing here is he's trying to determine the nature, the status of Paul's citizenship. There were sort of various levels of citizenship. Claudius Lysias says that he spent a large sum to buy his citizenship. Now, technically, that's not true. It wasn't legal to buy citizenship. But have you ever heard of a bribe? There's nothing new under the sun, and the implication here is that he had paid a bribe in order probably to gain his high position as a Roman commander. Did he think Paul had done the same? Perhaps more recently, placing him below the commander on the Roman honor scale. If so, he was immediately disappointed to hear that Paul was born a Roman citizen. Now, one of the things I read about was that we're not sure exactly how it was that Paul was declared a Roman citizen. Tarsus was not a colony of Rome like Philippi, so those born in Tarsus did not automatically have Roman citizenship. Um, If someone performed a great deed on behalf of the empire, um, the emperor could bestow citizenship upon them. That's unlikely from what we know of the case of Paul. One interesting suggestion was that this honor could be given to a group of people, including to a family. And since Paul was born with Roman citizenship, it could be that his family had been granted Roman citizenship for something they did for the empire. And one of the commentators speculated perhaps they had been in the business of sewing tents, and maybe they provided tents for the Roman army. Something like that would lead the Romans to grant citizenship to the family that would then pass down to the son. We don't know for sure how that happened, but the point is that Paul's citizenship from birth is of a higher status than the citizenship that the Roman commander had um, received by a bribe. Verse 29, Then immediately those who were about to examine him withdrew from him. And the commander was also afraid after he found out that he was a Roman and because he had bound him. So understandably, Paul's birthright citizenship put fear into the soldiers, including the commander. The scourging was called off, but they'd already bound Paul. They had already committed an act against a Roman citizenship for which they could get into great trouble. And they backed away from him in fear. This is reminiscent somewhat of what happened to Paul in Philippi, the only other time where he raises the matter of his Roman citizenship. You may recall that it was the Romans there who rose up against Paul and his companions after the apostle had cast out a spirit of a young girl who had made the men a lot of money through fortune-telling. And they instigated a mob to rise up against Paul and Silas, and the Roman authorities intervened. They beat Paul and Silas with rods. That's the lictor's rods uh, that Witherington had referred to. 
and they imprisoned them. The next day, the magistrates sent word that the men were to be freed. And we read in Acts 16, beginning at verse 36, So the keeper of the prison reported these words to Paul, saying, The magistrates have sent to let you go. Now they are to part, therefore depart and go in peace. But Paul said to them, They have beaten us openly, uncondemned Romans, and have thrown us into prison. And now do they put us out secretly? No, indeed. Let them come themselves and get us out. And the officers told these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Romans. Then they came and pleaded with them and brought them out and asked them to depart from the city. You see, the officials in Philippi had done more than bind Paul. They had beaten him with rods. While not as bad as scourging, the consequences for those who had performed this deed, if word reached their superiors, would be even graver. And as later in Jerusalem, these officials were struck with fear, and they had to be greatly relieved when Paul and Silas agreed to leave the city, though though they did so only after demanding that the officials themselves come, recognize their status, and then they were willing to go off. Well, this is a relatively short passage, but I want to note that it's interesting that there's only two times that Paul raises the matters of his Roman citizenship. That's what we've seen in Acts 18 and in Acts 16 and here in Acts 22. He never mentions it in his epistles. Why might that be the case? Why might it be that Roman citizenship, which was really sort of a badge of honor, it has certain privileges, as we've seen in both of these cases, why is it that the apostle wouldn't generally mention this thing? Well, I want to suggest three possibilities. Were Paul regularly to trumpet his Roman citizenship, it would anger the Jews to whom he initially reached out in the cities, who, especially in um, Israel, uh, were unhappy with their, uh, the occupation by their Roman forces. It would ally Paul with the Gentiles, and the Jews had a very strong anti-Gentile sentiment. And so you note that even in both Acts 16 and Acts 22, Paul doesn't reveal his Roman citizenship to fellow Jews. He reveals them to Roman officials in a rather private place when, they're, when he's imprisoned. So that could be one reason. It could hinder his ministry especially initially to the Jews. Secondly, that being said, Paul was willing to assert his citizenship rights when it seemed helpful to do so. Now, he wasn't afraid to suffer for Christ. Indeed, he underwent a painful beating in Philippi before revealing that he was a Roman citizen. If he had just said at the very beginning, now, wait a minute, I'm a Roman citizen, they would have backed off. They never would have given him the beating. But while Paul didn't flaunt his citizenship, neither did he despise it, and he took advantage of its privileges on select occasions. But the third reason, and I think this might be the most significant, is that in general, Roman citizenship did not mean that much for Paul. Just as he had come to regard his impressive Jewish credentials as worthless, so he didn't try to impress anyone with his Roman credentials. And it's interesting that he does speak of citizenship when he later writes to the church in Philippi. Now remember, Philippi was a Roman colony. It was where he had been beaten. It was where he had at one time brought up his Roman citizenship. But that's not the citizenship he mentions when he writes 
to the Christians in Philippi. Rather, he writes, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body, that it may be conformed to his glorious body, according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself. Paul's Roman citizenship got him out of a bind on a few occasions. His heavenly citizenship gave him eternal hope and earthly purpose. And if we would walk in his footsteps, we should not despise our American citizenship. You know, Paul wrote Romans 13. Paul wrote that those who rule over us are appointed by God, and they're there to, to do that which is good. And that was what he appealed to when he announced his Roman citizenship, to protect him from being unjustly beaten. We should not despise our American citizenship, and we should be model citizens so long as the government does not require us to sin. Paul elsewhere says that we are to pray for those who are in governmental authority over us. But having said that, having said that we should honor those who hold the office for the sake of the office, recognizing that that's been established by God, having noted that we are to pray for those in power over us, that we're to obey them unless they call us to sin, nevertheless, like Paul, we should not put much weight on our American citizenship. And you hardly need to tell me, I'm in trouble tonight, you hardly need me to tell you not to put too much hope in the American government and what it can do for you. Paul had his priorities straight. His heavenly citizenship meant everything. His Roman citizenship was just something he had in his pocket to pull out on occasion if it was helpful. And as Philippi was a colony of Rome, so the church is a colony of heaven. So I would urge us to look heavenward for our primary identity, our marching orders, and our hope in this life and for the life to come. That is the way Paul lived.